Lynn Alden is an investor and an analyst who frankly needs no introduction on this show. In our conversation, Lynn and I got into her interest in Bitcoin's Lightning Network, liquidity as a network effect. We got into the impact of stablecoins on Lightning, Bitcoin nation state adoption, and much more. Now, this is the part of the show where I usually ask you to send in sats and comments and questions over the Lightning Network. But today we've unlocked a brand new use case for Lightning payments on this show. Yesterday, I asked Lynn to send me her Fountain username. And today, Fountain released an update that allows me to put any username into the show splits so that that user gets a portion of the sats that are sent in. So right now, you should be able to see in the show splits, if you're using any podcasting 2.0 app, any sats you send in, any comments and questions as well, will be split 50-50 between Lynn and I. So we'll both be able to see the comments and questions, and half the sats will go to me, half the sats will go to Lynn. Um, this is also Lynn's first experience with podcasting 2.0. So if you enjoy this show, if you learn something new, send in a comment, send in a question, send in some sats, and let Lynn know that you appreciate the episode. Just a quick shout out before we get into the show. Today's show is sponsored by Voltage, the industry standard and next generation provider for Lightning Network infrastructure. Today's show is also sponsored by Zebedee. That's Z-E-B-E-D-E-E, -E -E, and Zebedee is your portal into the world of Bitcoin gaming. We'll have more from Voltage and Zebedee later in the show. Lynn, thank you for joining me on the show today. You are really well known for your takes on macroeconomics, on equities, Bitcoin as an asset, investing strategy. And I guess listeners may not all know this, that you're also very interested in the Lightning Network. You've been studying it for a while. I see you every now and then liking Lightning Network tweets on Twitter. What is it about this technology that is so interesting to you? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, and yeah, it is true that I, I've been in uh, pretty bullish on Lightning ever since uh, really around probably January 2021. Um, and mostly there's a couple of reasons for that. One, uh, in, in the broad kind of, you know, quote unquote crypto space, right? So a lot of it's speculation oriented. Uh, and what I like about Lightning and most things in the Bitcoin ecosystem is that it's so uh, – uh, the, the speculation to utility ratio – is so good, so, right? So Lightning is not a place you go to, you know, uh, gamble and kind of do arbitrage and things like that. It's actually use cases. It's about sending and receiving payments, uh, and about using it in the real world and making Bitcoin more efficient uh, as a medium of exchange. Uh, and so, like any financial system, it, 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 you know, it should be built in layers. And so we're starting to see that emerge more and more on the Bitcoin stack. Uh, and so I'm very bullish on that. And mainly, what I saw uh, just from kind of taking experience from other markets is that I saw it reaching critical mass, right? So for several years, it was in development. Uh, it was it was starting liquidity from a very, very low level. Uh, and it was kind of reaching that critical mass point of being usable in the sense that liquidity was reaching sufficient levels. And there was starting to be kind of a, a number of apps and things like that being built for it. And so I started to sense an inflection point after talking to some developers. Uh, in particular, Elizabeth Stark from Lightning Labs is very helpful in, in kind of getting up to speed on some of the things happening in the Lightning Network. But I also uh, I talked to other people in the, in the space to some extent. And so we had since then a pretty sharp rise in, in capacity. So it was kind of a well-timed call. And it's something that I, I then it, it continued to spark my interest in it because it, it started playing out. You know, when you, sometimes you have a view on something and then you end up being off in terms of timing or magnitude. Whereas if you start to get confirmation 
that what you're seeing is, is playing out, that, that of course keeps you interested. You say, okay, well that played out, so what's next? Is, is this going to keep going? Is this going to stagnate for a period of time? And so Lightning has been one of my more interesting areas to explore uh, in the whole Bitcoin ecosystem. Why is Lightning a, an integral part of Bitcoin? What, what makes it so important? So mainly the, the speed of transaction, right? And, and, the, and the efficiency of that transaction without sacrificing the base layer characteristics. So the way I would describe it is that Bitcoin does not need Lightning, uh, but Bitcoin benefits from Lightning, right? And so I, I think one of the, the problems with most blockchains is that they, they sacrifice. So the most important thing about blockchain is that you're decentralized, right? If you're not, de if you're not sufficiently decentralized, what are you doing, right? The whole, it's like, you, you might as well be in a database somewhere, right? So the whole point is to be decentralized. And a lot of blockchains then make sacrifices to their security or decentralization or both uh, in order to achieve other characteristics. So more expressivity, uh, higher throughput, faster speed, whatever the case may be. And I think it's pretty clear that's not the best direction to go in. Uh, I think, you know, the, 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 the way that the Bitcoin ecosystems developed makes a lot more sense. Any, any financial system in history operates in layers and each layer is intended for a specific purpose, right? It could be settlements uh, or it could be high speed, you know, uh, uh, less secure transactions, but they're secure enough for their, their smaller transaction size. Uh, and so the fact that Bitcoin is is growing in layers, not just Lightning, just Lightning I think happens to be, it's, it's one of the most technically challenging, but I think it's the one of the ones with the highest ceiling of where it could go compared to some of the other layers. But the fact that Bitcoin is growing in multiple layers makes it so that you can have your cake and eat it too. You can have a base layer that's immutable and decentralized, and yet you can have the higher throughput, and you can basically pick your own adventure in terms of how much you want your experience to be trustless and so and and fully, you know, self-custodial versus uh, bringing different elements of, of partial centralization or partial trust or complete, you know, uh, in some areas. So you can choose the base layer. You can choose Lightning. You can use Liquid. You can you can use uh, you know something like cash app that just runs on top of the whole stack uh and so you know depending on your circumstance you can pick that and i think that's important for the the way the ecosystem's going and so so when we think of base the base blockchain as layer one lightning as layer two um do you think all those other additional layers that may get added on over time are going to be focused on something other than transaction speed or it like it seems like lightning is kind of is so um, scalable in terms of transaction speed and um, throughput that there may not be a need for another another layer on top of that, right? Like at least in a direct sense. But but what might be like a layer three or a layer four on Bitcoin? What well, would it provide the lightning hand? So there are different ways to describe it. I mean, some people would describe impervious as a as another layer, even though it's it's you know it's, it's on top of lightning, right? So you're using lightning for additional capabilities. You're sending information rather than just value um, but I also would describe any any custodial platform is basically a third layer uh, now if they run directly on Bitcoin I guess you could call them a second layer but if they run on Bitcoin and lightning I, you can call them a third layer I think it gets murky because not not every layer is cleanly above another layer right so a layer can directly attach to multiple layers below it rather than just one but I think that there are always going to be some degree of custodial solutions uh, and part of that, you know, if you do the math, I mean, how many how many lightning channels can be opened in a given period of time, right? It, yeah, I think some people are still going to be using custodial solutions, right? Because there, there is still some scaling limitation with lightning. It's not like a it's not perfect across the board, 
Uh, and two, if you're if you're competing on speed, you know, lightning's about as fast as you get for trustless uh, or or nearly trustless, uh, you know, type of interactions. Whereas if you're just in someone's database and you're trust and you're being trusted, uh, that could be as fast or faster, right? So if you're just if you're sending cat if you're sending money from Cash App to Cash App, right? That's just in Cash App's ledger, and it's hard to beat the frictionless environment of that. So I think you're always going to have these kind of hubs, these 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 players. Uh, you know, some people want someone to call on the phone when they have a problem. They want customer service. They might want additional features. They might want you know, all sorts of rewards, whatever the case may be, the interactions we have with, with, with companies, some people might want that for some percentage of their interaction with the network. And so I think that, that there's going to be layers that interact with, with Lightning, but that Lightning is an important infrastructure layer, and then people can choose how directly they want to interact with that personally or interact, it, interact with it through, you know, a more centralized third party. Makes sense. Um, I, want, I want to have a discussion about network effects. Um, because I know this was a focus of your discussion with Elizabeth Stark at Bitcoin 2021. You did a panel uh, there. You wrote a piece about network effects as well last year. Um, and you kind of highlighted some, uh, some key reasons why you started to buy into Bitcoin's network effect. Um, just to highlight a few for listeners, uh, you talked about the resolution of hard forks, uh, layer two tech, industrial grade custody, bringing major investors on board. Um, now, so I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to understand here is like, what do you think, um, do you think Bitcoin's network effect has now passed this tipping point at which it, it can't be stopped? Because in the piece that you wrote, you highlighted examples of, of times when companies or, you know, products had, had gotten to such scale that they were effectively impossible to compete against. Um, do you think we've achieved that point in Bitcoin's kind of like 12 year, 13 year history here? I think it's it's achieved escape velocity in the sense that I, I don't describe anything as riskless or unstoppable, uh, but I, I perceive the, the risk to its network effect as much diminished compared to it was years ago. And the reason I focus so much on network effects is because when I, you know, began in like uh, analyzing the whole space years and years ago, uh, one of my hangups was, okay, so Bitcoin's scarce, but there's Litecoin, there's this other thing, there's there's Ethereum, there's, you know, so there's an un unlimited ability to create new ones. And so what what makes one retain market share over another? Uh, and so, and that, that still holds up a lot of people today, right? So I wanted to, so I, I kind of kept doing research on it and I saw more information come out. So for example, like you said, resolution of hard forks, which I covered. Um, but there are a number of things, there are a number of factors at play that maybe say, okay, wait, so, so Bitcoin has a serious network effect. Uh, in a similar way that say, anyone can copy Wikipedia, um, but it doesn't mean your copy of Wikipedia is going to have any traffic because you don't have the millions and millions of links around the internet pointing to your version of Wikipedia, nor do you have the army of, of editors and people constantly contributing to it to keep it updated like the real Wikipedia, right? So it's very, very hard to, even though you can copy it and make your own, to actually go against the real Wikipedia. And so I viewed Bitcoin as having achieved that level of status where the level of central decentralization, the backstory of how it was created, you know, with the anonymous creator walking away, it's hard to replicate that whole thing. Uh, the the branding, the the security, the level of decentralization, all these things reached a point where any other attempt at a cryptocurrency is inherently inferior, almost, you know, almost with an infinite gap 
in terms of its ability to keep up with any of those things that, that Bitcoin has. Uh, and that from a technology perspective, any of the trade-offs that they make are usually sacrificing something that is inherent to what a blockchain is supposed to solve, which is decentralization. It's basically a whole point of a blockchain is that you're you're being very inefficient in order to have this trustless decentralized thing. And so it's kind of ironic that many of these other cryptocurrencies then sacrifice some of that in order to achieve other features. And so I basically viewed, the reason I went into the, uh, that analysis is to, to explain why my view on Bitcoin became more favorable over time, because it, it kind of cleared out my biggest concern, which was market share dilution uh, in the mm -hmm. space. And so what I'm seeing now is that Lightning is like another network effect on top of Bitcoin's network effect. Uh, and it, in some ways, it, it's an even stronger network effect, even though it's smaller. It, it's kind of harder to displace because liquidity is very hard to build up. Liquidity is a type of network effect. And so it, you can imagine, so people often say Lightning is small compared to those crazy things happening in DeFi, right? So, but one is that there's there's no financial incentive to get on other than to use it you're not being you're not like you know uh you're not speculating you're not doing arbitrage opportunities really i mean around, you know it's really about that actual utility first of all but also it's just an inherently hard technology to get bootstrapped because it's a chicken and egg problem no one can use it when liquidity's low uh but in order to get liquidity up you have to get users right so it's it's one of those things it's like a freight train you know like one of those super long like mile long trains and they're very, very hard to start, right? Because you're, you're so much mass to get moving. But once you start moving, once you do that really hard part in the beginning, it's really hard to stop that train uh, because there's, there's just a tremendous amount of momentum. And so the way I would describe Lightning is that it's a, it's a very technically challenging system to, to build. It was very, very hard to bootstrap. Uh, but now that it's, it's reaching critical mass of liquidity and usability uh, and serious network effects, that's really hard to replace anywhere else. Uh, that that's extremely valuable uh, in, in the direction it's going. And I know that there are, you know there are still limitations. There's still a lot to do. There are there are disagreements in the community about different directions to go in, what different implementations are prioritizing. Uh, but I think the really hardest part, which is establishing that baseline liquidity, uh, is a a very powerful network effect that is now built on top of Bitcoin's you know original network effect. Now, I'm interested in, in hearing about why liquidity specifically is this is what this network effect revolves around, and why not? Why is it not um, you know just the number of people on the network? Why why is it liquidity rather than um, you know number of connected people that can can access Lightning? Well, that they're closely correlated. So so more people makes a more liquid system. Uh, you know, there, there's also differences in how those people, how, how organized that liquidity is, right? So, for example, in Lightning, there was a, a burst of initial capacity uh, Bitcoin put onto the network, but that was not very efficiently allocated yet. That was like bootstrap liquidity. And, and so it looked for a period of time that Lightning capacity was stagnating, was going sideways, whereas that, that's because it was going from this, these inefficient blobs of liquidity and it was actually spreading out to, be, to, to creating more liquidity with the same amount of capacity. It was becoming more efficient. And then in, in, in over the past year, we've seen that explosion in capacity, uh, which was, you know, kind of a, a, an actual growth of the network. And I think so if you if you think about something like a stock exchange, right? So the stock exchange that were, that were around 50 years ago are still the, the leading stock exchanges, right? So the New York Stock Exchange is not going away. 
And that's because once you establish yourself as the place where there's liquidity, where there are, there, you've, you've hit the critical mass of market participants, it's hard for another entity to come around and say, hey, all you people that already have this thing working should come over to, to my other system. Uh, and so the fact that Lightning did reach a, you know, a usable number of people uh, and then, uh, you know, it, it worked on some of the, the challenging problems of how to, how to, you know, get that initial liquidity going. Uh, and so the fact that now you can send a payment with a pretty high chance of success compared to what you could do a couple years ago, both the size of the payment and the chance of it going through makes this system much more usable. And only at that point could you do things like onboard a sovereign nation state and things like that, that, you know, that you can start. Uh, having rather large entities come into play. So right now, now you see Cash App getting into it. Now you see Kraken getting into it, right? So these are things that are that are possible because of the work that, that developers did over the preceding years and that the early users did back when it was really janky to use uh, and, and it, you know, is more of a novelty. Uh, all of that initial building, that bootstrapping, is now what, what makes it workable now. So that's why liquidity is so important. Because if you want to actually send serious payments easily, you need that critical mass of enough people using it and for the connections between those people to actually be reasonably efficient. Mm -hmm. So those two are pretty tightly interlinked then, the number yeah. of users and the liquidity on the network. And they kind of, yeah. would you call that like a just a feedback loop there between the two? Yeah, it's a positive. Yeah, yeah, it's a positive flywheel. So if you if you had trouble launching from the beginning, you know it's possible the lightning never would have taken off. Uh, but once you get to the point where there's enough people on it where it's usable, that that makes it far more inviting for more people to come in, uh, at least when they're ready, when they have a need for it, right? Because I, I still think Bitcoin as a medium of exchange in general is still very early days compared to Bitcoin as say the the hard money narrative, right? So I, I still think it's super early. And that, you know, rather small percentage of people, quote unquote, need it. Uh, but the fact that now it's there for people that want it or need it, I think it's really valuable. And, and so I think that that, that that critical mass that it is reached, uh, I, I think is very promising. So now what do you think about the relationship between the network effect of Bitcoin, the asset, and this lightning network effect? Um, where like Bitcoin as an asset, um, you know, Maybe if, if Michael Saylor buys 100,000 Bitcoin, that doesn't necessarily make the Lightning Network more effective or it doesn't, it doesn't change that. How do you think about those two network effects? Are they entirely separate or how, how closely are they related? Um, I would love to hear the distinction between those two. So I think they're interconnected in the sense that, you know, the, the, the number of people that own Bitcoin is relevant for the success of the Lightning Network, right? So you you can build the Lightning Network on Litecoin, for example. I mean that's that that's happened, right? So you can you can you can build Lightning on on, on other blockchains, but it doesn't mean that it's going to be as successful uh, because you need that underlying network effect, right? So if I want to start Lincoin and then try to build a Lightning Network on top of Lincoin, that's probably not going to do very well, right? So whereas Bitcoin uh, gives you that 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 huge starting point from which you can then build on. Uh, so I think that in order for Lightning to be successful, Bitcoin has to be successful, uh, first of all. And then, you know, I think Bitcoin is less reliant on Lightning than the other way around uh, as the base layer. It doesn't need Lightning. If Lightning were to fail for some reason, uh, you know, I think that that may be that that's a that's a little bit of a black mark on Bitcoin, but it doesn't mean Bitcoin can't succeed, right? It just means because there are other layer twos uh, and there are other ways to scale. 
but I think that, that it does strengthen Bitcoin um, because now, in addition to Bitcoin being the, say, the, the most secure, hardest money, you can also say it's the fastest, right? So it's the best as a meme exchange uh, uh, while also being uh, that hard money. And so, you know, there are some, some people like Elizabeth Stark that for years have been pointing out the separation between Bitcoin the asset and Bitcoin the network and that Bitcoin can become like the TCP IP of value. Uh, and so now uh, you can you can theoretically transfer other types of, of assets over Lightning, at least over time, you'll be able to do that. Uh, and we'll see to what extent that capability is used. Um, but I do think that the more features of Bitcoin that are heavily used, the better it is for Bitcoin, right? So Bitcoin as a store of value is useful, but then also Bitcoin as a medium of exchange adds another layer of value to Bitcoin and makes it more entrenched in people's lives because you know i think the two, the two biggest selling points of bitcoin one is the inflation resistance right the ability you know you, you have this uh, uh set in stone supply distribution schedule uh over time it becomes the most you know non-inflationary asset in history we have fully audible supply cap uh and so that's that's a that's a huge total addressable market for the world right so the, the world's just plagued over the time especially in emerging markets but really globally by inflation by by fiat currency uh, um, uh, dilution so that's one but number two is the whole censorship resistant payments right and, and the ability to self custody and to make payments without anyone's permission uh, and so you can do that with the base layer especially when fees are low uh, if Bitcoin becomes more and more popular and if 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 block space is filled more often and fees are higher it's nice to have other layers that people can go to and still have at least a relatively trustless experience rather than having to rely entirely on a custodial scaling solution, right? So I, I think that that is an important uh, ability for people to use the other aspect of Bitcoin, which is as that medium of exchange and as that censorship resistant way to, to transact with someone. Mm. How does Bitcoin make a transition to being a unit of account? But what means, what will it take to kind of get there? Because we've seen like, two countries now have kind of said from a top-down approach, we're going to make this this legal tender. Um, do you buy into the idea that it kind of goes through this uh, phase of like first store of value, then medium of exchange, and then unit of account? Or is there another way to kind of like get to unit of account going through top-down government orders or kind of like countries adopting uh, Bitcoin as their own currency? I think for the most part, you need to go to that store of value uh, uh, avenue first. And that's because to the extent that it's not widely held, right, if only a small percentage of the population holds it, uh, and if, if a lot of people still don't understand it or are certain about it, you know, those that, that combination of things is going to give it volatility. And extreme volatility makes it very hard to, to use as a unit of account, right? So, so it's hard to price things uh, in Bitcoin when Bitcoin, you know, it changes so rapidly compared to, say, the price of copper compared to the price of a house, compared to the price of gold, compared to the price of a dollar, right? So, uh, it, you know, it is still fluctuating significantly because it's a very small base. And even though it's larger than a lot of small currencies now, uh, it's it's distributed across the world, right? So, so there's other ones at least have the advantage of everybody in that small region uses that currency, whereas Bitcoin, in ex with very limited exceptions, Right, so some part, you know, that uh, Bitcoin Beach, for example, but with, with with very limited exceptions, in any given area, the percentage of people that have Bitcoin and that want to transact with Bitcoin is very low, low percentage, uh, and so that makes it very hard to use as a as a medium exchange in a broad scale, 
and that makes it uh, uh, nearly impossible to use as a unit of account. Plus, just you know, you have all these tax laws, you have all these just accounting systems. You have, all of that is like a huge network effect built up literally over centuries, uh, and that so that's a very that's like a gigantic container ship that you have to turn very very slowly. It's very you know that doesn't just turn on a dime, um, and so I think that it's one of those things where you have to have more people hold Bitcoin and Bitcoin become a larger and larger share of their holdings. Uh, and if they can, you know, if, if you hold Bitcoin, let's say you put 10% of your net worth in Bitcoin and then it outperforms your other assets over the next five to 10 years. And now Bitcoin represents the majority of your net worth. You, you want to consume now, right? You, you want to use some of that. You want to diversify some of that. And you say, okay, I can either sell Bitcoin for fiat or I, you can just go to merchants and be like, why don't, can you accept my Bitcoin? I want to just pay in Bitcoin, right? It's, it's easier anyway. Lightning's great by that point, let's say. And so I think that as more people have Bitcoin and they have it in significant amounts, that's when you start to see more and more interest in a medium of exchange. Uh, I think that the early users of medium exchange would fall into one or two camps. You know, from the, from the very beginning, if, if you specifically need uh, permissionless censorship resistant you know payments uh that's where you know bitcoin from the beginning was useful uh so you know you could use it on the dark web for example and that's where it got some of its its nefarious things because you people were actually applying its use case uh you know for both good good reasons bad reasons i know alex gladstein for example documents all the human rights uh uh kind of you know circumstances where people use bitcoin constructively for its portability and permissionlessness right so there are there are niches uh, and I think if more people were educated on it, there'd be the, the use cases are more so where you can use it for its 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 you know other properties besides store of value. But I think for the for the broad scale, especially for people in developed markets, uh, I think the store of value really has to come first. And when you when you do something top down, I think you're going to get limited buy-in. It's going to be confusing to people. I think it has to really kind of come organically for the most part. But of course, it can be accelerated by countries saying, okay, well. Bitcoin is now not taxed when you send it around, so that that's obviously a huge impediment. That that's how that's one re, that's one way way that current the countries manage their own currencies, right? So they they may, they say, okay, if you want to trade gold around, we're going to tax every transaction. We're going to call that a capital gain. Same thing with Bitcoin. If you're going to move that around, we're going to tax every transaction. So we're going to make it uh, we're going to disincentivize you using that as a medium of exchange. And we're also going to make it so you can't pay your taxes with it. You have to convert it to dollars. And then pay, uh, or or wherever you are in the world, your your local fiat currency. You have to pay taxes and those things. Those are the two avenues that the countries basically enforce the usage of their currency, other than turning to outright bans of their assets. Uh, mm. And so the combination of not many people having Bitcoin in large amounts, and all the frictions associated with taxing and things like that, I think I think makes it slower for Bitcoin to become a widespread medium of exchange and unit of account. Do you ever see an instance where someone like the U.S. says no capital gains on Bitcoin? Or do you think there's always going to be, are they always going to try and use that to kind of like reinforce the strength of the dollar and, and people's reliance on the dollar? I mean, there is that, that's, uh, I believe that there's a, a, a bill in the Senate being proposed to make uh, under a certain amount, like a $600. Yeah, $600. Uh, I, I could see things like that because the, the argument there is that you don't want to stifle um innovation right so so you say okay i don't want someone with a billion dollars of bitcoin being able to use that for 
you know, tax avoidance, but you can say, okay, I want I want small users to be able to say, uh, you know, fund their favorite podcaster, right, with with Lightning, right? So I think that that there are that there could be things like that that make it easier to use on the small scale. Uh, I think you'd have to see a pretty radical change uh, in order to see uh, Bitcoin be a non-taxed um, asset in in the U.S. or Europe. Uh, I think that would take quite a while uh, at, at a bigger scale. Right. And now uh, this kind of ties into the discussion around stable coins and specifically stable coins on Lightning have been getting quite a bit of steam in the last uh, six, 12 months. Uh, I think the Human Rights Foundation has a bounty up for stabilized Lightning. Uh, Synonym is working on uh, bringing Tether to Lightning. We have Taro bringing all sorts of assets to Lightning. Um, what impact, well actually before we get into the impact, what do you think? What do you think got this uh, this push to stable coins? Um, kind of what was the catalyst here for for lightning stable coins? Why is this now such an important thing in your mind? Well, so I've I've been bullish on stable coins for a few years now. Uh, it's kind of the one area outside of Bitcoin that I've been bullish on. Uh, even though I mean they they started on Bitcoin, but just primarily right now they're not on Bitcoin uh, because Bitcoin is not optimal for for you know being the base for them. Uh, people prefer to use them on other blockchains. Uh, and that's, I think, for obvious reasons. One is because Bitcoin is still volatile and because it has tax issues, uh, you know, having, you know, blockchain rails with with fiat unit of account is, is useful to a lot of people, right? And so a lot of people need dollars uh, for various reasons. Uh, and so stable coins are useful. And I mean, an example, if you're in, if you're in Lebanon and if you have dollars in your bank, they can be confiscated. Uh, you know, so so something like Tether or USDC, despite any risks they have with their collateral quality, are certainly seem like less of a risk than than in some of these banks, right? So uh, people are willing to take those risks. You know, also over time, I mean, back in the early days, Bitcoin was used as the unit of account in crypto trading. So if you wanted to buy an altcoin and sell an altcoin, it'd be against that Bitcoin pair. And with the invention and proliferation of stablecoins, uh, Bitcoin kind of lost that status and he made stablecoins and, and just dollars in general, the, the unit of account for all that kind of crypto trading. And so most of the stablecoin usage is not really for, for medium exchange, it's for, it's for trading liquidity, it's for trading unit of account, uh, basically getting back to cash and then getting back into whatever speculation that they want to do for the next period of time. Um, but we do see around the margins that there is some usage of them as medium of exchange, right? Especially in uh, developing countries, or especially if you want to send value globally, right? It, it's just a, it's a much easier experience. Uh, and then of course regulators are looking at that as kind of this open thing that that's kind of this tug of war between users and regulators, and and we'll see how they catch up. Um, what what Lightning does is Lightning says, okay, well here's the cheapest, fastest way to send value. Um, uh, and now you can combine it, or at least you will be able to combine it with stable coins, right? And so um, I, I think the implications are obvious for, I mean, there's a reason, to, so for example, stable coins, you know, for a while they were heavy on Ethereum, and they still are, but they also spilled over into Tron. And the question is, why do they spill over to Tron? It's like, well, because they don't want to pay $50 to send a $50 transaction, right? You can only do large, large stablecoin transactions on Ethereum because of the, you know, the, the speed and the throughput and, and things like that. Uh, and so, but 
with Lightning having, you know, nearly unlimited throughput and speed with low fees, especially as liquidity grows, uh, that is a very attractive, you know, kind of underlying layer to have stablecoins run over. And so to the extent that, you know, stablecoins can return to Bitcoin, I'd be happy to see that. And I think that at least for that medium of exchange element, uh, they are a useful bridge between now and whatever future is where, where Bitcoin is more widely held and more kind of stable and more clear from a regulatory standpoint and more people understand it. I think the ability to exchange, you know, fiat value, stable value over Bitcoin rails is very useful. So I, I'm pretty bullish on stable coins on Lightning. How much of that? I think I think the stable coin market today is about $200 billion or somewhere around there. How much of that $200 billion do you think flows towards Lightning, given that this is probably going to be used primarily for payments rather than some of those trading use cases or borrowing and lending? So I think not a lot at first, right? I, I think that, that and that's, that's also why I think the comparisons of, say, people are like, you know, so people in like altcoin spaces will say Lightning doesn't matter because look how small the total locked value is, right? But they're comparing it to basically a casino. They're comparing it to a leveraging uh, and like trading environment, right? So, you know, I think that just like that, this will also be kind of slow just to start out, right? I think it's going back to that freight train analogy. Uh, I think that it starts slow, but it just picks up a lot of momentum. And so because there's not some huge you know, massive arbitrage incentive thing to get people in, right? They're not coming into it to gamble for the most part. Um, I, I think that people come into it when they need it. Um, and so I, I think it's going to be one of those things that just, it keeps grinding up over time rather than some immediate explosive burst when it comes out. So I think for a while, or, you know, for, for kind of the foreseeable future, the percentage of stable coins on Lightning probably won't be huge. Uh, but I think that that'll be disproportionately weighted towards more valuable use cases, right? I, I think that, you know, giving emerging market people more access to, to payments is more valuable than having whales doing arbitrage in DeFi, for example. I mean, if you look at, like, chain analysis does, an out, like, uh, statistics, uh, they look into DeFi, and it's almost entirely, like, institutions and whales, these, these large funds playing around and arbitraging things. It's this big circular kind of speculation thing. There's very limited, you know, use case for the little guy, right? So, so actual kind of practical, real-world things. And so, I, I think going back to that, Lightning has a higher, you know, a lower ratio of speculation to utility. So, a higher ratio of utility to speculation, we can say. And mm-hmm. so, I think that that whatever whatever usage is on Lightning will be a more valuable usage, uh, and it's there for people when they need it uh, once that capability is developed. Mm. And over time, do you think, um, like, let's take a look at something like Tarot, where you can issue all sorts of assets. Maybe maybe all the fiat currencies that exist today can be issued on Lightning. Um, what do you think that does to existing fiat payment rails? Like, which rails are going to be the most impacted by a transition of fiat currencies onto Lightning? So I, I think the traditional payment rails can be impacted uh, unless they adapt to it pretty quickly. Um, but I, again, I think that'll take time, right? Because there are huge entrenched advantages, uh, network effects of the existing things like Visa and all that. So, you know, they have this thing where they, they charge pretty high fees, but they also give people pretty significant rewards, for example, on their credit cards and things like that. 
Um, and so over time, I think we'll see more and more growth coming from lightning-oriented payments compared to the legacy players. Um, but it's not, I don't think it's like a light switch where just, you know, like it all just kind of rapidly goes over there. I think that some of those, just the growth can be unimpressive while the growth that we can see in lightning can be much faster. And that, yeah. you know, when people, when, especially when relatively tech savvy people look at the differences and especially if they want to do international payments, right? Uh, it's just, the frictions are much less. Uh, and so I think that it just can over time take market share by being more efficient and cheaper and then you can also, I mean, there are there are platforms that do rewards and things like that. Uh, and so I think over time we'll see more and more integration. And then we'll even see integration between those legacy players uh, and Lightning, which we're already seeing to some extent. I think that's going to continue. Uh, and so I think that, you know, with something like Cash App, the fact that you can send value to any other Cash App account, but then now also you can withdraw via Lightning and things like that. I think that, you know, that that's a very useful product to a lot of people. Uh, and then also people can go out of those custodial solutions, and if they want to do all sorts of international things like that, that's now open for them. And of course, that brings regulatory challenges, right? Because I mean, really, what the what Bitcoin did was, you know, prior to Bitcoin, it was hard to send value internationally in large amounts. You know, you could you could put a couple of dollars into an envelope and send it to Japan, for example. But you know, other than that, it, it's hard to send liquid value long distances. Uh, without using a bank intermediary, you had to go through a, a, a trusted uh, centralized entity, and they could just say no, right? So, so if any country wants to impose regulations of where you can send money to or who you can send money to, they don't have to enforce that on the consumer layer. They can just tell the banks these are your rules to follow. Uh, whereas now that due to technology, consumers have direct consumer-to-consumer -consumer payments globally. Uh, and, and instead of relying on a trusted intermediary that, that can say no, they're just relying on this decentralized network uh, that doesn't really care. Uh, that opens up regulatory, uh, uh, you know, kind of questions about how governments are going to respond to that if it becomes larger and larger over time, where it, it's much harder for them to enforce because they have to enforce it on the consumer layer, which is obviously orders of magnitude more enforcement points than just telling a number of banks what their rules are. So mm -hmm. uh, I think that there are challenges uh, ahead for the Lightning Network, uh, even though I'm, I'm bullish on the whole space and the technology involved. What do you think some of those um, regulations might look like? Like if, if governments all of a sudden say, listen, there's too much activity happening on Lightning. We can't see any of it. We want to, we want to step in and kind of like siphon it off. What, how, how might they approach that? What would be some of those strategies? I guess exchanges would be a first point of contact. Yeah, I think the exchanges, the large custodians, there'd be there'd be regulations, more regulations on, you know, when you can withdraw it, what size you can withdraw it, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, beyond that, it, it's hard to do. I, I think that's an open question of because then you have to predict who wins elections, right? Things like that. So it's hard to say what's going to happen, but it is very hard to enforce in practical terms. Uh, and if you go back to the gold ban of the 1930s, that was also very, very hard to enforce, right? How do you how do you stop people from owning a benign yellow metal? It, you know, it, it's it's very hard. They didn't go door to door with guns, you know, searching for everyone's gold. Instead, what they did was they said, okay, you get up to 10 years in prison if you have any, uh, other than like you know s small amounts like your wedding ring and things like that. Um, and so there are very few prosecutions 
but it kind of forced it underground uh, and dissuaded a lot of people from owning it. So basically, draconian penalties can be a substitute for actual enforcement because if you make a few examples of people, you know that can that can really slow down obviously usage of the network. Uh, but mm-hmm. of course, in order to do that, they they kill innovation and they push it elsewhere. So there's, there's kind of a game theory aspect to it. So I, I do think it is it is a challenging network for regulators to regulate, and I, I have open questions about how they're going to approach it uh, in different countries. Yeah, I wonder. Do you think do you think they have the uh, like? Could they take a similar approach to gold there, where they just say, hey, if you if if we see you making transactions in it. If you're if you're sending money to or from exchanges uh, in Bitcoin, off to jail. <laughs> I I think it, so. You've seen that in Turkey. I mean, to to a limited extent, they basically said that you can't use crypto as a way to pay, right? So they mm. they, they didn't make it illegal to own, but they they made it illegal to pay with it. Uh, and I haven't dug into the details of how that law works or to what extent it's being. In, I I don't think it's really enforceable, uh, but it's there, kind of like the gold thing. So I, I do think, obviously, in some countries you'll see that. Uh, another way to go about it, without being kind of like, you know, kind of that blatant, is to just be really picky with tax enforcement. Uh, and basically say, you know, this person moved a lot of value around. Hey, do you have tax receipts for every one of those microtransactions? Mm-hmm. You know, and then if you don't, well, you just committed like a tax. You, you just violated tax law, right? So I, I think they can apply existing laws in a, a, a very aggressive way to deter usage, usage of it. Uh, now, they can be response functions. I mean, you'd have to have the software get better and better at tax re- reporting and things like that um, so that people can use that. But the, it's just a challenging environment. That, that's kind of that, that transitional period is very challenging. And that's actually where stable coins on Lightning can be helpful because you, then you can use Lightning without incurring taxable events. Uh, that, that's actually another big thing is in addition to the volatility reduction, you can make payments without, you know, taxable events because you don't, it doesn't fluctuate relative to the dollar. So there's no, you know, capital gains, uh, uh, at least at least noticeable taxable gains. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Voltage. Voltage is the industry standard for Lightning Network infrastructure. Creating layer two applications and services on top of Bitcoin starts with Voltage where you can spin up nodes, get access to liquidity, optimize your node, and much more. Voltage is leading the way as the next generation provider of Lightning Network infrastructure. And if you want to get a free trial and start using Voltage today, you can do so at voltage.cloud. I want to talk a bit about um, different kinds of payments that can happen on Lightning that just can't happen at all in in a fiat system. I guess like remittances are hard to do in in fiat world, uh, especially if you're moving money internationally, um, and it's just it's a time-consuming process. But it can be done. Uh, what do you think some of the interesting use cases are going to be developing on Lightning that simply cannot happen on fiat rails? They're just too expensive, or they're too time-consuming. Things that have to happen like instantly. We're seeing, you know, initial traction for things like gaming and podcast streaming and you know internet native applications like that. Are there any particular ones that you're excited about, things that you think uh, could develop on Lightning that just there's just no precedent for in a fiat world? Anything that involves microtransactions uh, and very, very frequent transactions. Uh, again, you would need either reporting or tax improvements around the, that front. But essentially, anything that is 
you know, right now, if you look at PayPal and Visa and things like that, there's usually a minimum fee that they charge uh, because it takes a minimal amount of work for them to, to process a, a transaction. And so they, they're very discouraging against, say, penny transactions, right? So uh, whereas with Lightning, you can do very, very small transactions. And so that opens up machine-to-machine -machine transactions, right? So automatic machine-to-machine -machine transactions. That opens up gaming transactions. Uh, that opens up things like Impervious, where you can you can use uh, tiny little transactions uh, as part of uh, your more more your focus is on transmitting information, but you're also transmitting micro amounts of value with that information. Uh, that, you know that that's you don't do that over Visa, for example. Uh, and then uh, just in general programmable money, right? So so just little things you can do that I think I think you know, an analogy I recently used is that when the iPhone came out. No one thought, "Wow, in 10 years, this is really going to disrupt the taxi industry, right?" Yeah. It just you don't you don't kind of put one and one and one and one together until you get like seven. You just think two or three steps ahead, and it's hard to say what what happens five steps ahead. I don't know. I think I think that uh, programmable programmable money is a set of building blocks similar to smartphones and the internet, where it's hard to say where it goes in 10 years. Um, I, I think another thing that's exciting would be you know, anti-spam. That, that's something that Michael Saylor talks about a lot. I don't know if it's going to catch on. But I, I hope it does. It'd be cool um, because you can use that as, I mean, proof of work was invented as an anti-spam technology. And so it would be cool to see Lightning used for some of that purposes. I think that has some of the capability to be used as a way to reduce spam uh, and as a way to, to, to add small amounts of friction uh, to improve, you know, uh, you know, internet quality. Mm -hmm. Now, with with micro earning and, and or micro tasks and being able to like earn in tiny amounts from anywhere, as long as you got an internet connection. If we zoom out, what impact do you think that will have on developing economies? Do you think this is going to be a meaningful shift in value flowing overseas and, and basically like enabling billions of people now to access? work or you know things that they could not participate in before it should reduce frictions uh uh for uh basically people in in developing countries you know really what we see a combination of work from home technologies and smoother payment systems so being able to go around banks and things like that to the extent that those continue to be possible uh that makes geography a lot less important uh and so that that can include people moving to other locations and continue the work that they're doing, right? So that's number one. And then number two, opening up access to people throughout many markets uh, to new uh, economic activities that they didn't have in their local markets, or at least anywhere to near the same extent. So I, I think that's that's favorable. I, you know, I think obviously the risk, there's always a, globalization always has some of downside. So for example, over the past several decades, the United States shifted a lot of its manufacturing base over to China which has been very beneficial to Chinese working class. I mean, obviously, it's very challenging for them, but then over time, they build up wealth because of it, whereas the American kind of blue-collar working class was impacted negatively by, by this general change. And so I think you can see potentially positive and negative divergences as you open things up. Um, uh, but that overall, you know, an open system uh, is, is more efficient at basically bringing on as much talent and as much work as possible to the global marketplace uh, to increase in the long run productivity for everyone. Mm -hmm. Now, one uh, earning 
kind of one way to earn money on Lightning right now that's picking up a bit of steam is uh, value for value. I'm not sure how familiar are the, the, like this is how like podcasting works on Lightning. Is it basically like anyone can listen to it, it's free, but you can support if you choose to. Um, and this is also, this is starting to, to be seen as like a, an actual business model for like the podcast index that maintains the, the, the list of feeds for, um, for all these podcasting 2.0 apps is a value for value business model. And that's kind of like um, starting to take hold a little bit. We have Stacker News as well. It's kind of a value for value approach to Reddit. Do you think that something like value for value or some other form of monetizing content on the internet takes hold when, when lightning kind of adoption matures? I would like it to. Um, I, I would say, you know, I do think that overall business models that rely primarily on audience funding or, you know, direct customer funding are the best is, is the, you know, the lowest conflict of interest. Um, you know, for many types of businesses, that's, that's already a smooth experience with fiat. You know, for example, I mean, you can have, you know, like a membership website where you get dollars. Uh, you don't really need Lightning for that. Uh, and so a lot of those business models are not, at least in the near term, radically impacted by the existence of Lightning. Um, obviously, Lightning is going to be popular in the Bitcoin space, in the Bitcoin ecosystem, because people have Bitcoin, they have SaaS, they want to, you know, they want to support other uh, uh, people that are working in that space. Uh, so I think on a micro level, uh, that's really useful. Um, you can also, if you if you reference Stacker News, that's also an example of using Lightning as anti-spam. Yes. Uh, because you're 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 both incentivizing people, and you're 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 you know you're adding a cost to spam. Um, I mean, I would like, for example, the option on Twitter to say, hey, if you want to if you want to comment on my thread, you need to to spend five sats or whatever, right? And so it's a trivial cost, but for the if you like ever look at my threads, it's just like bot after bot after bot after bot, and I don't I don't, I don't want to add a meaningful cost to normal people to c contribute, uh, but I want to deter this mindless spam, right? So um, I, I I think that where Lightning can take off is in areas that are not currently well served by traditional fiat payment rails, uh, and then aside from that, even where those rails work. There are people obviously in the Bitcoin space who just prefer to use Bitcoin, right? So, mm -hmm. so whether or not Lightning is solving a specific problem for them, they just want to use it and they want to support it. So I think I think those are the two vectors. One is just people want it, and number two is that there are specific areas where it's better. And now, in the topic of like people being underserved by by current solutions on the internet, um, what are your thoughts on um, if Twitter allowed you to kind of like earn? For pe if people just like your stuff and, and you can earn a sat for each like you get, and do you think that do you think that becomes a a business model where none previously existed, where you can all of a sudden like monetize directly on one of these social platforms? It could be Twitter, it could be Facebook, it could be Instagram, where all the engagement has a, a cost that accrues to you, and then all of a sudden you can directly you you can have a, a pool of earners that never could have directly monetize their their Twitter feed and they can now see actual value that's transferable um, where they previously relied on you know sponsors or or some some other form of monetization so I ideally yes right so um, ideally yes the, so one of the things I'm watching is to see how these network effects develop right because I mean 
the reason Twitter is successful is because it, it, it reached critical mass for what it does. And so even though you can you can make your own Twitter, your, your ability to get Twitter's users is, is very, very hard. Um, and, you know, when we look at, say, platforms that add a cost to posting, right? In, in some ways, what you're doing is you're adding a friction to posting. I mean, there's a reason that, that Twitter accounts don't cost money to set up because if they did, obviously Twitter would be much smaller and it'd be much harder for them to, uh, you know, have achieved that network effect. Uh, and so if you add a cost to being a user on a platform, that could slow down growth. On the other hand, you're also incentivizing good content to be produced, right? And so uh, I'm, I'm still kind of watching to see to what extent that can take off. Does, does one outpace the other? Do the, do the frictions, you know, for having a, a non-zero cost to, to participate, is, does that make it too slow to kind of really bootstrap? Uh, and reach that kind of critical mass of millions of users? Or uh, does that incentive uh, overcome that and make that work? So uh, I think there are questions around to what extent should you make a platform that requires that versus to what extent should you add that as an optional feature uh, onto platforms, right? So, so that it doesn't need to be there, but that especially, say, accounts that are getting spammed can then use it. So then in some ways you get best of both worlds. There's no friction for onboarding, uh, but then you know you can you can add those capabilities to either reward content creators or to deter spam and, and, and add a cost, a minor cost to interaction. Uh, so I think I think it I think there are still questions about business models, uh, but it's something I, I'm I'm super happy to keep watching to see what sticks, right? So it's hard to predict ahead of time what sticks, uh, and I'm just kind of watching to see what what does stick. Yeah. Back in the 80s, this, you're reminding me of something that um, Stuart Brand said about information. He had a quote that was like, information wants to be free because it is, you know, the, the cost of producing it is continuing to go down, but it also wants to be expensive because in an information age, the uh, movement of information is the primary like economic event. And so I wonder, there's, there is this tension, right? It's like, on one hand, you want information to be accessible to all. And, and like, I think Web2, the growth hack there was kind of like, just make it free. And just make Facebook free, make Twitter free, make YouTube free. Anyone can use it. But then on the other hand, you have like, if, if you're not going to earn directly from the stuff that you're, that you're creating, you, you all of a sudden have to find a new way to earn. So there is a tension there. Do you think Lightning changes that situation and improves it meaningfully where you can now charge directly if it's if it's a small enough amount combined you know multiplied by millions of people or billions of people maybe that can actually create a business um, where you couldn't previously do that with with fiat because of those those like fixed transaction costs um, I wonder do you think that lightning kind of changes that dynamic and that tension between information wanting to be free and information wanting to be expensive. I, I think it can. I think also that balance changes over time. So I think, so let's say in the investing world, for example, you know, decades ago, getting information was the hard part. And then over time, as information became more and more abundant, uh, the harder part became filtering information. You know, the information is like a fire hose now, right? And the question is, how do you filter quality information 
from useless information. And I think that's that's kind of the general trend we've seen in multiple places around the internet is that as we've opened up information, the question is not can I afford books? It's how do I pick which book to read out of the, the countless books, the infinite number of books that are written every year, right? And, and things like that, right? So there is, I think, and then when you look at when you when you're not paying any money at all to to use a platform, that means you are the product, not the customer, right? So so in some ways, your experience, either knowing to you or unknowing to you, is going to be deteriorated, right? So uh, it could be known to you, like so. For example, you could your experience could be that you have to you have to see ads because you're not paying anything. Alternatively, you might not see ads, uh, but your all of your data might be taken and and sold to people, right? So your privacy is basically infringed. Uh, based on your ability, your your desire to have this for free, um, you know, I think one of the solutions to that is that kind of freemium model, where where you want to have so when you want to have kind of these interactive areas, you want to have as many people on as possible, right? So you want to reduce friction for, for getting people on, uh, but then I think you want to add optional ways to either monetize your work or to prevent people from interacting with your work. Unless they go through some minor, you know, value transfer, minor friction, either either to just to uh, deter spam, or to have them kind of you know buy into that. Uh, and so I think like that's why I think ideally, is something like anyone can make an account, anyone can can post on their own, but that people can set up restrictions on posting on their stuff, or sending them messages. Uh, and you can also do things like send tips to people, boost people. Uh, things like that. So I, I kind of envision a freemium model as being ideal, and that Lightning enables that in a way that the current fiat rails don't really work. Uh, but I think that you know, there's all there's this is like a playground that entrepreneurs can figure out what the right mix is. Right. Um, and and then existing platforms can implement things, uh, but usually legacy players are slow to make changes. So it's really kind of up to startups to to figure out what works. And I I have an open mind about what's going to be used in this space, but I think that the building blocks are there to create really interesting things. Are there any particular applications that you've got a chance to test out and uh, found found useful or found exciting? Any of the, the Lightning applications? Have you tried any of them? Uh, so I've, I've, I've used some of the wallets. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, because I wanted to test liquidity and things like that myself, test user experience. Uh, other ones I look at, like I've looked at Stacker News, uh, you know, I've looked at some of these. Um, you know, because of the tax implications and things like that, I've not been super early adopter in some of these. Um, but it's something I'm watching to see how it takes off. And then especially when you do things like add stable coins on top of Lightning, where, you know, even in unfavorable tax or regulation regimes, uh, you can potentially have hybrid models where you're still using the benefits of Lightning uh, with, with fiat, right? So I, I think that there are... I'm just kind of watching the space mature, and I just keep thinking... Uh, about kind of directions it can go in and seeing what works, right? Instead of just theory craft, I'm kind of just watching to see what takes off, what doesn't, and, and then trying to figure out why. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Um, I want to shift the conversation to nation-state adoption because just yesterday we got the second uh, country to announce Bitcoin as legal tender, Central African Republic. Um, maybe we could start off with a reflection on the first I guess nine months of El Salvador and their Bitcoin law. What what was your opinion on it when it went into effect or when it was announced at Bitcoin 2021, and how has that evolved over time? 
So I was I was positively surprised by the announcement. Uh, that's something not something I would have guessed for 2021. Um, it's kind of earlier in in kind of Bitcoin's timeline than I would expect for something like that to start happening. Uh, I think it's favorable. I think it makes sense for them given how much remittances they have uh, and the fact that they're already dollarized. Uh, also, there's first mover advantage because then you can bring in tourism, you can bring in investment activity uh, and things like that. So I think I think it made sense economically. Uh, the risks, the biggest risk I'm watching to that, there's two risks. One is that now Bitcoin is somewhat tied to the reputation of El Salvador's governance, you know, whether it should be or not. Uh, it's just kind of, you know, to whatever extent El Salvador stumbles, uh, that gives media fuel to, to go on against Bitcoin, right? So they, they, they're somewhat tied at the hip now uh, to a limited extent. Number two, uh, you know, for El Salvador specifically, so far, I think the biggest risks have been have been their, their sovereign bonds, right? So uh, for various reasons, including credit rating agency downgrades, things like that, uh, their bond yield spiked. Uh, and so that makes it hard to refinance uh, and hard to get reasonable cost of capital uh, unless they can entirely change over their funding to, say, Bitcoiners uh, and Bitcoin-backed bonds and things like that. Uh, and so their success in, say, generating more tourism or more investment uh, uh, types of activities can be somewhat offset by problems in their sovereign bond market. Uh, and so I, I think it still remains to be seen how successful that will be. But I do think it makes economic sense to have done what they did. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm cautious, optimistic on, on how that turns out for them. And now that we have a second country jumping in as well, does that change the relationship between, like you mentioned, the, the close ties between El Salvador's success and Bitcoin's success? Does that change now that there's a second nation involved? And does that did that open the doors for other nations to step up and also um, take a look at Bitcoin? Because I think the the currency that the Central African Republic was using is also used by a handful of other countries in Africa. Um, and so I wonder, is that do you think that opens the door to uh, a handful of other countries to also participate? So uh, the short answer, I think, is yes. So one is that there are strength in numbers, right? So if there's one country with Bitcoin legal tender, they're an obvious target uh, because th they go against the legacy system, uh, and you know basically to whatever extent they succeed or fail, they you know people will, will tie Bitcoin's narrative to that. Whereas if you have ten countries uh, using Bitcoin as legal tender, that's a very different story, right? And so that that's a movement. Um, you know, this second one is so it's it's smaller in the sense that you know El Salvador is a relatively impoverished country uh, on the grand scheme of things, whereas this other one is extremely, extremely impoverished. I mean, it's a small fraction of El Salvador's GDP per capita. They have very low internet access, unlike El Salvador, where mobile phone uh, uh, access is pretty high. Uh, uh, Central African Republic is very low. Uh, so I, I somewhat struggle to see that they're going to get anywhere near the, the benefit that El Salvador gets. But I, I think it's hard for it to hurt, right? I, I think that, you know, to the extent that Bitcoin is legal tender, uh, I think that's just good. Right? I think it's just good for the economy. Um, I just don't know. I, I think it'll, we, there's not a lot of information out of it yet, but I think a lot of it's symbolic, right? So uh, as you pointed out, there, you know, there, there are 14 countries in Africa that use this currency that's tied to France. 
uh, and it's actually split into two chunks. So I think it's like eight use one type and six use the other type. Uh, uh, but you know, essentially, they're using this this uh, you know kind of French run currency, and that has obvious uh, ties to colonialism, right? And so I, I think that I wouldn't be surprised to see other ones of those other 13 countries do something similar in the future. Uh, it, you can call it kind of a you know kind of a pushback, right? Or and so. I wouldn't be surprised to see more countries in Latin America and more countries in Africa uh, uh, adopt Bitcoin legal tender. I think it's a good thing. I just think you have to be careful about how much we get enthused for you know some of these early entrants, uh, you know, especially if it seems more symbolic than something that's going to maybe pay off in the next couple of years. Right, and I guess for the people in the Central African Republic, if I think I think I looked up GDP per capita is something like eight hundred dollars yeah. per person, and I think El Salvador was like three or four thousand. Um, so in, in a situation where you have people who may not be able to save money, um, and as you mentioned, may may have low internet access, um, do you think it's realistic to expect Bitcoin to significantly improve their um, their standing in life and their their ability to kind of um, you know, consume resources over time. How long is this process going to take? Like it, it, it doesn't seem like there's a there's a quick win for someone who doesn't have much income and doesn't have much internet access um, to to benefit from what Bitcoin has to offer. That's how I interpret it. Um, you know, admittedly, I'm not an expert uh, in that country uh, and and its details, right? So I've, I'm always cautious to opine on things that I've just learned about. Um, but yeah, basically, my, my initial impressions are that with such low internet access and, and such extreme poverty, it is hard to get an immediate benefit out of it. Now, to the extent that someone has internet connection and now maybe didn't didn't really wasn't paying attention to Bitcoin, but now because of this, they pay attention to Bitcoin. Uh, you know, they could potentially get work from abroad. Uh, you know, they could earn Sats in various ways that they might not have thought about a month ago, right? So I, I think that there are. There, there certainly could be individual lives that are changed because of this. Uh, I, I just think that it would, it would take time to, and, and more favorable conditions to see this really start to kind of take root and make any sort of change. And then again, you know, the opposition, the political opposition in the country can then use that against them. They can say, okay, well, this is, what is this for the top 1%? I mean, most of us don't even have internet connection. What is this? So, yeah, it, it just opens up political challenges. Um, but I think in the long run, it's favorable. I just don't. I just don't know how it's going to materialize in the next couple of years. We'll see. Is it realistic to um, to have like a, a central bank in one of these African countries step in and buy Bitcoin in the same way El Salvador did? Because now they have a reasonable amount of exposure. I think it's something. It's over a thousand Bitcoin, um, and you know, for a population of six million people. Um, so, so if Bitcoin does succeed, it, there is some exposure in the country to um, benefit from that. It may not be directly at the individual level. Um, so I guess, do you think there's a playbook here for um, small or um, developing countries to step in, buy Bitcoin, um, and kind of ride its coattails to improving the quality of life in the country? So I think that any any country leadership that becomes bullish on Bitcoin for one reason or another should seriously consider putting a non-zero amount uh, you know, in their reserves. So it could be a sovereign wealth fund 
or it could be a central bank uh, purchase, basically. And it doesn't have to be a, you know, it's not like they have to go all in, right? I mean, it's a volatile asset. It, it'd be, you know, these are these are supposed to be the safest pools of capital, right? So you, you generally don't allocate to things that go up and down 50% in a short period of time. But, you know, I think around the margins, you know, it would make total sense to have some, right? It's because you're, you're buying in this disinflationary asset that has a very strong track record uh, and that I think that, that, that conditions are still looking very favorable for it for the next decade. Uh, and it also solves the second problem, which is permissionless payments. If for whatever reason that country is cut off from payment systems, they have an asset that they can send globally, uh, you know, for value for, to buy other things. Uh, and so I, I think that having a non-zero amount of Bitcoin, especially for these smaller countries that might have more flexibility, right? So, you know, they, they have less career risk. They have less, you know, they're, they're kind of more able to take kind of Hail Mary type of plays uh, to put a non-zero amount. I mean, you know, if you put 5% of your central bank balance sheet in Bitcoin, what's the worst that could happen compared to the upside that can happen, right? So I, I do think it makes sense. I don't know if we'll see it, but I'd, I'd like to see it. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I know we're running out of time, but I want to I want to finish off with a discussion around um, the bear case for Actually, we can do this for both Bitcoin and Lightning, but specifically, I want to talk about Lightning. Let's start. Let's start with Bitcoin and and your bear case on Bitcoin as an asset. So I still think we have some regulatory risks of of major regions cutting off from their banking system, right? Basically, killing the fiat on ramps. I think it's a low chance, but it's a non-zero chance, uh, and they can combine that with ESG FUD, right? So even though I I view Bitcoin as favorable to the energy grid. Uh, and and you know I think it's it's a positive thing. I think that opponents to it can use anything against it, including you know quote unquote environmental impact. Um, given where politics are in the U.S., I don't see that as particularly likely in the next several years. Uh, it seems more likely in Europe. Um, so I, I think there are ongoing risks there. I think another risk is regulation against uh, you know self custody. Right, and so I, I think that there's there's attempts to basically trap Bitcoin on exchanges and in large custodians. Um, and so I think that those are risks. Uh, and then you know, th- I think there's very small probabilities, but there's non-zero probabilities of technical risks. So things like if you find a major bug in in the existing node uh, uh, releases, or if you have really contentious forks, uh, you know, Bitcoin's been able to navigate that in the past. Uh, I think it will continue to. I think it's robust enough to, uh, but it's still something I watch. Uh, and so I think that there are there are still challenges. Um, and it also is reliant on people eventually seeing that Bitcoin is more decentralized than these other altcoins, right? So so I think I think the thing that slows down Bitcoin adoption is one of the biggest things is the proliferation of altcoins. Um, I, I think Elise Kaleen said it best where if Bitcoin succeeds, it will be in spite of altcoins. And to the extent that any altcoin succeeds, it's it's largely because of Bitcoin, right? So so all of these other things are basically kind of spam attacks on Bitcoin. They're diluting attacks on Bitcoin. And over time, you know, all those people that bought Doge in that last spike could have instead bought Bitcoin. And maybe over time they'll learn and then they'll come buy Bitcoin. I, I think it's a learning process. Uh, but I think that some of these big engines of VC-driven uh, speculation to have to kind of reach their natural conclusion and kind of wind down 
uh, or fail spectacularly in some cases before some of that capital kind of moves over towards Bitcoin. So I, I think there are things that can slow it down uh, uh, more so than stop it. Do you think that this cycle was kind of the peak of that altcoin mania? It seems like every successive cycle from the last like five or 10 years has, has been, we've seen more altcoins pop up. At some point this, I, I imagine this has to stop, right? Like we went from like having a handful of altcoins back in what, 2013, 2014 uh, to a thousand in 2017 and now 10,000 uh, today uh, or more, I, I can't keep track. Um, at what point does this spiral back down or what, what point does this stop growing? Because it doesn't seem like, you know, there may be 10,000 now, but they have only captured a, uh, you know, the, the Bitcoin dominance in the last four or five years is more or less unchanged. Um, so they've kind of like diluted themselves and not necessarily gained traction against Bitcoin. So what, what, what's the downfall of altcoins? How does this all unfold? There's a couple ways. One is regulation. So regulation is more of a risk for altcoins than Bitcoin. Right, because a lot of them do pass the Howey test, seemingly, and are probably securities, uh, which means that there are various hoops that you have to go through if you're going to offer them to sale to the public. Um, and so I could see the U.S. taking a harsher stance against some of them. Uh, that's not, that that that'd be kind of a big weight on them. I think another one is that you exhaust the ways to speculate, and the narratives kind of dry up. Now. You could keep that going by then, if people have short enough memory, you can revive an older narrative, right? So, so for example, Bitcoin went through the block size war, but then in some ways we have we have like Elon and Doge talking about the block size war as though the prior one didn't happen, right? It's just kind of, it's like a, it's just restarting it all. So the the risk is that some of the narratives just recycle. You just pick something that failed five years ago and say, well, this one, you know, we're doing it again this time, it's better. Uh, so I think that in some ways you could just eventually exhaust it but they still have kind of residual desires to speculate. I think another thing is that the, the macro environment, if it becomes less favorable, you know, if it becomes more stagflationary, that kind of forces less speculation and more utility, right? And so I think that to the extent that happens, it's better for Bitcoin than the other ones. Mm. Now, if you're to think about the bear case for lightning, because you mentioned earlier that that it, lightning didn't doesn't necessarily have to succeed and Bitcoin can still be a success, right? So what is the bear case for lightning look like? And is it possible that we see something else come up in the next few years that, that does, you know, replace some of the activity happening on lightning? I think one of the bear, I think the one of the most likely bear cases is that it just stagnates for a while, like it hits some sort of plateau and then it, you know, it has trouble growing for a while. And we've generally seen that in other Bitcoin layer twos, right? So, so some of these, you know, they come out, they they reach, you know, some degree of usability, and then they become kind of ghost chains, right? So just like not a lot of activities happening there. Uh, and so I think that's the the biggest risk to Lightning, where it continues to function, but that it's just not a big thing. It just it just doesn't really explode. Um, that that'd be number one. Number two would be disagreements about priorities, right? So I think I think some people can say it failed for the purpose that they want to use it for, whereas other people say, no, I love it, it's great, right? So I think that you can have, you can have, I don't, I don't think it's failure state is objective to some extent. I think it's 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 subjective. Um, but the cool thing about it is that it's an open network, 
right? So if you if if someone feels that features are lacking, they have the ability to then go and build those. And the problem might be that some of those features are not heavily in demand, even though they probably should be, right? I mean, so I, I think, for example, overall, not just Lightning, but I think in general on Bitcoin, and, and even just going back to the altcoin speculation, I, I would have rather have the last five years been more focused on privacy development than some of the things we've seen in terms of speculation and things like that, especially in altcoin land. But even on Bitcoin, I would have liked to see a little bit more of a, a push towards privacy. Uh, and that's not lightning specific, like I said. It's just it's something I like to see. Um, and so I think you can have individuals make a reasonable case that say Bitcoin that lightning is not meeting the needs that they want. Uh, even though it might be needing the needs of other people. And so there's always going to be disagreements about what to prioritize. And that's also why there's different implementations, because then they can they can prioritize different things at different speeds. Uh, and so yeah, so I would say, yeah, basically summarizing, there, you know, there's one, that it just stagnates. That, that's, I think, the biggest risk. And number two, that it just, it just it can't offer everything to everyone, especially with liquidity, if you, if you want the major implementations to have the features you want. Do you think there's a risk that um, governments band together and kind of try and try and emulate the success of Lightning in a fiat world? Do you think there's a, a risk that maybe this looks like a centralized, maybe this is a CBDC, maybe this is uh, some new implementation? Do you think there's a risk that because there's very clear uh, tax rules on fiat, um, that opens up a kind of vector for attack or, or a way for a government or a group of governments to uh, build a competing solution? So I, I think the ongoing tax implications are a challenge for Lightning and just in general Bitcoin as a medium of exchange, right? It, it, it deters spending your Bitcoin. Um, and that can be somewhat resolved with at least bridged with the stablecoin on Lightning solutions if they catch on and, and become workable. Um, so I, I think there are defenses against that. I, I do think that, you know, I mean, obviously things like Cash App make things really easy because you can you can just send things within Cash App or you can use Lightning. So I, I think there's that hybrid. Um, CBDC, so China started working on CBDC back in 2014, right? And so it's been years and years and years of development. And then now they're kind of in that launch stage. Whereas like, other central banks are just thinking about thinking about it, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think that at the speed with which they move, it's hard for them to compete with what's going on on Lightning unless they're willing to resort to very draconian types of regulations, which, you know, depending on the jurisdiction you're talking about, like in the U.S., for example, the political environment is very torn, right? So we have basically an evenly split Senate. Uh, and so, you know, when people talk about, for example, that FDR gold ban, you had, a, you had one of the strongest majorities you've ever seen in American politics, right? So, I mean, you had the Great Depression. You had an extreme consensus that was able to get things through, whereas you don't really see that type of unification in this environment, right? So I think as long as you see kind of this, this split type of environment, that's good for uh, private sector things that are just working because it makes it harder for them to be impaired upon. And we see... We see kind of local jurisdictions also signaling favor. So, I mean, you know, a number of cities, mayors and things like that are very welcoming to Bitcoin and, and sometimes more broadly crypto. But, you know, I, I focus on the Bitcoin and we see we just saw, for example, Texas, uh, Fort Worth, Texas plans to mine Bitcoin in City Hall. 
So, you know, I mean, it's something like three machines, but the point is it's symbolic. It's interesting. Uh, yeah. And so I, I think that the regulatory risks, at least for Bitcoin, continue to, to diminish, uh, but they're non-zero. And that any sort of competing technology they can do is probably going to be slow and too late. Right. Okay. Final question for you. Um, year 2025, how much Bitcoin is in public capacity on the Lightning Network? 2025. It's hard to say. I mean, I, you know, I, I'd like to see over 10,000 uh, yeah. Bitcoin. Um, but, it, you know, I, it's hard for me to make a high conviction view because you could go through periods where it levels off and then explodes again. Uh, Parse is going to depend on what Bitcoin does in terms of price. Um, but, you know, back in January 2021, I said over the next five years, I, I, you know, I think that this is a sleeper hit. I think that, you know, that was when I was basically saying that it was reaching critical mass. And so we got a really big gain uh, in the first year since that. Uh, and the next four years, I, I still have that five year positive view on Lightning. So. So that'd be kind of the end of 2025. So, you know, I'd be somewhat disappointed not to see 10,000 Bitcoin on Lightning. I, I still wouldn't think that failed, right? So it's still useful for the people that are using it, right? So uh, I think that, you know, it's kind of like build it and they will come in the sense that it's there for people that need it. Uh, and so regards to how big it is, as long as it's working for people that need it, I, I think it's a success. Uh, but then, of course, you can have additional success on top of that, the bigger and more useful it gets to people. And we also could see a moment where, you know, if there's 10,000 Bitcoin on Lightning in a few years, it could be cycling through the ecosystem 10 times faster as well yeah. and, and satisfying so many more payments than it is today as, as efficiency improves. Yeah, I would look at, uh, I know Arcane Research, for example, does does great. Uh, they did they had a report lately where they talked about, they separated like trading uh, versus, compared to actual payments. So I, I think, looking at payment type of statistics is very useful uh so i like to see higher and higher payments uh i think it's yeah i don't think capacity is the only way to measure it it's just kind of one of the easiest ways to measure it right uh but i think that yeah i think most metrics could be you know to the right and up and the question is magnitude and timing um but yeah i i if i were to give a number i'd say i hope i would hope to see ten thousand. i like capacity. that prediction i like it um, thank you so much for taking the time today. Uh, where can listeners go to learn more about you and the work you do? Uh, I'm at lindalton.com. Uh, I'm also active on Twitter at lindaltoncontact, so people can, can see my work there. Thanks for awesome. having me. Welcome to the Lightning Round presented by Zebedee, your portal into the world of Bitcoin gaming. The Zebedee app, that is Z-E-B-E-D-E-E, -E -E, is a full-featured Lightning wallet and allows you to earn Bitcoin for playing games. Now, I thought it'd be fun to spice things up a bit. So if you go download the Zebedee app, you'll get a chance to compete against me and earn some extra sats. Each month, I'll be playing a different Zebedee game. And you can find them all in the Zebedee app. Uh, but this month, I'm going to play Toby. Now, my high score on Toby is currently 625 meters on flyby mode. So if you go download the Zebedee app and beat my high score, send me a screenshot of it on Twitter as well as your Zebedee Gamer tag, and I'll send you some extra sats. Good luck. Here we go, lightning round. You guys sent in 20,300 sats in the last seven days. That comes in from 20 different supporters, 
and we're gonna quickly run through the top five. We have Jeffrey who sent in 4,900 sats, Gur underscore Lentel who sent in 2,156, NGU Tech 21 sent in 2,058 sats, Nick sent in 1,764, and Turla sent in 1,640. We got a lot of new users as well sending in sats to this show for the very first time. So thank you to everyone sending in sats and comments and questions. Uh, we have three extra questions or comments that uh, I didn't read last episode uh, a few days ago. First one comes in from Brian of London, uh, who was using CurioCaster. And Brian of London says, thanks for talking to Zero Fee Routing. I found him to be super helpful on Twitter until I was kicked off of Twitter. Great content. P.S. Tell him you got a boostagram for the interview. Thank you, Brian of London. I've, uh, I've sent this, I forwarded the message over to uh, Zero Fee Routing. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you sending in the 931 sats and the comment. Uh, Jeffrey says, great show in response to episode 39 with Dennis Ryman on BTC Pay Server. And says, I'm inspired to evaluate building some extensions. No promises, but it's on my list. Uh, thank you, Jeffrey, for the 4,900 sats. And uh, let me know if you ever, if you build any of these extensions, send them over in a boost and I'll check them out. Uh, we have an anonymous user who also sends in a message that says, thanks for creating this awesome content with a heart emoji and 206 sats in response to episode 40. Thank you, anonymous user. I appreciate the sats, the comment, and the heart emoji. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, this is Lynn's first experience with Podcasting 2.0. So if you listen to this episode and you learn something new, send her a comment, send her a question, uh, send some sats, let her experience this Podcasting 2.0 value for value business model uh, that we all know. Thanks for your time and looking forward to seeing you guys and your comments and your questions in a few days.